0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air. When I was on the air last with you guys, uh, it was hard to believe I, we were starting a new uh, series. And now we're going to be getting into the meat of the series on signing their rights away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the United States Constitution by Denise Kiernan and Joseph Diognese. The same authors who wrote signing their lives away the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence which I discussed with many of you all a year ago around this time so where do we begin now with signing their rights and signing their rights away do we talk about the signers well as I mentioned from the uh, introduction uh, a couple nights back There were 39 men who signed the United States Constitution. It would be virtually impossible to talk about 39 men in one night. However, the best approach is to talk about as many of these men per the state that they uh, resided from. That's the best way to really tell the story. So, what state are we going to discuss first? Is it going to be from New England? or the New England region, I should say, or would it be from the Middle Atlantic region or the Southern region? Well, I have the answer for you all. We're going to discuss um, New Hampshire, being from New England. And is it fair to say that of all 13 colonies, or rather I should say states by now, because we have Not only do we officially declare our separation from England 11 years earlier in 1776, we are our own nation. However, we are a fledgling nation, given that our nation needs governmental reform. That's why 55 out of 74 delegates came to Philadelphia at the very... um, uh, I don't know if they all came at one time. I, I believe it's very doubtful that all 55 delegates arrived at the same time in May of 1787, but they all arrived within a reasonable time frame to come together to debate on what needed to be done in order to secure America's future. So, we, this uh, podcast episode will be, discussing about uh, the New Hampshire uh, delegation. However, before we start uh, to uh, get into um, discussing about the signers from New Hampshire, I should um, go over a couple of bonus questions with you guys. How many men were still alive? This is bonus question number one. How many men were still alive in 1787 whom had signed the Declaration of Independence 11 years earlier from 1776, I'll give you a, a number uh, range to choose from. The range is from 40 to 50. How many men do you think were still alive in 1787, whom had signed the Declaration of Independence 11 years earlier? the The range again is from 40 to 50. The answer is 43. Believe it or not, folks. Yes, 43 men. Out of fifty-six were still living uh, by the time the uh, Constitution was uh, signed, and as well as when it was first debated. That's a pretty impressive number overall. Forty-three out of fifty-six, in my opinion. Let me ask you all this uh, second bonus question: Did Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who were a part of that? Famous committee of five that helped uh, draft the Declaration of Independence. Of course, yes, Thomas Jefferson was the author of that document, but John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston all uh, were a part of a a very essential committee that helped uh, Jefferson um, not only just write the Declaration of Independence, but helped them with the necessary revisions, considering that Jefferson had to make uh, about 86 revisions before that uh, final Uh, document was submitted to where um, the delegation, or not just the delegation, but everyone in attendance agreed to the document and then two days later declared July 4th as the official nation's uh, holiday. So were Thomas Jefferson and John Adams um, present at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia? Uh, The answer is no. Where was Thomas Jefferson? Well, let me ask you this. Was he at his home in Monticello, or was he overseas in Europe? The answer is um, choice B. He was overseas in Europe. He had left Virginia three years earlier in 1784 to accept the French ambassadorship position, which he held until 1789, uh, being the same year that George Washington uh, became our nation's first um, president. John Adams let me ask you this, was he still in Massachusetts when the Constitution was first being debated, or like Jefferson, did he go over to Europe? Well, believe it or not, just like Thomas Jefferson, John Adams um, left um, Massachusetts right after February of 1787 to become uh, Ambassador of England. Two Key uh, revolutionary leaders who are still making their presence known uh, on an international uh, on an international uh, level our last bonus question is the following: what's important about may twenty fifth seventeen eighty seven The constitutional convention officially begins, and who is elected president of the constitutional convention? I'll give you some choices. Was it John Hancock of Massachusetts? Was it George Washington of Virginia? Was it uh, John Rutledge of South Carolina? The answer is choice B, George Washington of Virginia. He is elected president of the Constitutional Convention. So now we will begin our discussion with New Hampshire, the New Hampshire delegates who signed the Constitution. How many men do you all think uh, came to Philadelphia from New Hampshire? Was it more than three? Or was it less than three? The answer is choice B, less than three. So who is our first delegate we're going to be discussing about? Many of you all probably don't know his name. I didn't know anything about him until I read the book. He may not have been on the same scale as George Washington or James Madison, but after reading about him, he sure did leave a good legacy. His name is John Langdon. Langdon spelled L-A-N-G-D-O-N. For one, uh, John Langdon grew up in New Hampshire all of his life. Of course, we must keep in mind that some of our forefathers were born in one state but lived in another state for for the remaining duration of their life. Um, I tend to think of Benjamin Franklin as a great example. Um, Most people don't realize that he was born in Boston, Massachusetts, but yet made Pennsylvania. He lived in Pennsylvania a majority of his life when he got to uh, adult age status. But yes, his roots were originally uh, planted in Boston. But as for John Langdon, he is born in um, 1741, I should say June 26th of that year, 1741. That means he would have been born two years before Thomas Jefferson. Um, He would have been born say six years after uh, John Adams and Paul Revere, just to name another uh, set of uh, famous forefathers interesting enough john langdon would have been born around the same time that the great awakening was happening in america led by um, ministers like uh, jonathan edwards and george whitfield of course when i think of the great awakening i think of jonathan edwards's famous uh, sermon uh, sinners in the hands of an angry god matter of fact i found out in sunday school back uh, from this past sunday that uh, the teacher said that Jonathan Edwards uh, preached that sermon for, um, I believe it was like for eight straight months, wherever he went, because he was very worried that uh, most congregations would not have gotten the message right the first time, so the more he preached it, perhaps the the better ingrained it was into uh, into the majority of uh, people's minds. Of course, I'm not a theologian, but I just thought that was uh, something worth pointing out, But Yes, uh, John Langdon is born in June 26th of 1741. His family was the first to settle near the entrance of the Piscataqua River. Uh, the Piscataqua River, I found out, is a 12-mile-long tidal river that forms the boundary between New Hampshire and Maine. Lang- the Langdon family settlement eventually became known as Portsmouth which would become a major New England seaport. And believe it or not, I, for one, I live in Virginia and there is a uh, city uh, east of where I live, not far from Norfolk and uh, Suffolk and the Hampton Roads area called Portsmouth, uh, Virginia. And there is a Portsmouth, England. So it is fair to say that Portsmouth, Virginia and uh, Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire, their names are derived from the uh, city in England uh, which was more than likely a seacoast city, or or is a seacoast city, rather, being Portsmouth. Well, uh, given that uh, the Langdon family settlement became known as uh, Portsmouth, is it fair to say that John Langdon's father was a shipbuilder? Absolutely so. But he was also a well-to-do farmer. Hey, there's nothing wrong with having multiple trades. If that's the way you got to make a successful income, if, if that's the way to make an income to be successful at what you do. Well, what kind of career do you think uh, John Langdon chose to pursue after finishing grammar school? Did he decide to follow in his father's footsteps by being a farmer or did he choose to strike it out on his own with the uh, influence from an older sibling? It just so happens that John Langdon chose to strike it out on his own with influence from his older brother, who also happened to be in the Navy, and John himself chose that um, route. He started out as an apprentice to a naval merchant. Okay, it's one thing to go join the Navy, but hey, if you're going to join the Navy, you need to apprentice, apprentice yourself, because... There's more to being in, there's more to the Navy than just being a sailor. You've got, you know, if you're on a ship, which you were in those days, you've got to know um, how to um, steer the ship. You've got to know how to um, be a team that goes about building a ship, like, you know, caulking, rope making, those kinds of um, trades that go along with um, being a part of something uh, greater. So in 1763, at the age of 22, which is the same year that the French and Indian War comes to an end, or that infamous A.K.A. Seven Years War, John Langdon became captain of a cargo ship, which sailed to the West Indies. And in 1767, at the age of 26, he established his own firm, which included owning a small fleet of vessels involved in the triangle trade. What do you think is the triangle trade? Well, obviously we know triangle has uh, three sides, but for the triangle trade, this trade uh, network involved the uh, city of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, as well as the Caribbean region and London. You know, remember folks, Colonial America, there's more to the British Empire than just uh, Colonial America. The British have a vast stake in in the Caribbean a.k.a. the West Indies. So what kind of uh, goods do you think uh, would originate from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, that could be brought down to the Caribbean? How about salted cod? You know, of course, when I think of Massachusetts, I think of Cape Cod. But at the same time, the um, I, I think it's fair to say that even in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, you're going to be able to salt fish. Maybe not cod, but salt Fish in general, to where you can ship that down to the Caribbean, for um, for, for people who uh, would benefit from that kind of um, trade market, and then uh, the people from the Caribbean would send something in return to uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, most notably like sugar, for example, or um, salt. Uh, Of course, when I think of the Caribbean, I tend to think of sugar, but believe it or not, uh, salt was a very valuable commodity in the Caribbean. So that's the triangle trade right there for you, folks. But let's learn more about John Langdon. Was John Langdon's shipping business impacted by British policies? So we're talking now about the the post-French and Indian War era, rather, I should say. Do you think it's fair to say that uh, as time went along after the French and Indian War ended that John Langdon's shipping business became severely impacted by British policies? What kind of policies do you think would have uh, impacted John Langdon? Well, how about the Stamp Act of 1765, or, or most notably the Townshend duties where um, taxes were placed on lead, paint, paper, glass, and the infamous commodity, the tea? Of course, in the end, Parliament repealed those Townshend duties, most notably the taxes on the lead, the paint, the paper, and the glass, but not on the tea. But I do believe it's fair to say that John Langdon was severely impacted by um, the uh, duties that were placed on um, as a result of the Townshend Acts. But he became very anti-British by the start of the 1770s. He served on the New Hampshire Committee of Correspondence, including the Non-Importation Committee. Remember, folks, what those committees of correspondence were? They formed in all 13 colonies, and they um, corresponded with one another, and and once they wrote their letters in their respective state, they would have a courier rider go into the neighboring state to um, deliver the news from the state next door, and this way, states could learn about one another and find out what they had in common and what they might have had um, difference-wise. But but by the time um, delegates met, especially if that first Continental Congress gathering, over time, those letters that were um, distributed helped um, many of the delegates get to know one another. And let me ask you this: What state do you think was um, instrumental? in establishing the First Continental Congress gathering, uh, which um, which assembled in Philadelphia around September of 1774. Was it um, South Carolina? Was it Maryland? Or was it Massachusetts? The answer is Maryland. Believe it or not, folks, the Marylanders were very instrumental in getting the uh, First Continental Congress um, established. So, as for John Langdon, yes, uh, he also served on the Non-Importation Committee. That was a, a committee that um, came to a unanimous agreement on deciding to um, ban all good imported goods from England coming into America as a result of all the, um, what do you call it, um, unfair practices uh, along with legislation that Parliament passed. And a lot of that was attributed to the uh, Intolerable, aka, Coercive Acts from 1774 that, yes, were geared more towards the people of Massachusetts, but when the Parliament decided it was uh, appropriate to close the Port of Boston, many other port cities feared that they would be next, most notably Charleston, South Carolina, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, New York City, just to name a few. I also found this interesting with John Langdon that he participated in the capture of Fort William and Mary on December 14th of 1774. You know, just a few months earlier, the British had successfully stolen gunpowder in the middle of the night on the outskirts of Boston. And so Paul Revere decided that he needed to do something to get a little payback. Well, he rode about 50 miles to Portsmouth, New Hampshire in one day on horseback. For those of you who were with me when we discussed Paul Revere's ride by David Hackett Fisher, well, Paul Revere had a big part in uh, coordinating the um, raid, the surprise raid that led to the uh, takeover, not only of just Fort William and Mary, but all of its munitions inside, a.k.a. gunpowder. Well, John Langdon himself helped Patriot forces overtake the fort's munitions supplies. Hey, John Langdon, folks, is no stranger to freedom. He's no stranger to um, doing what is right for his country when it's needed. So remember, folks, there's there are so many other people out there that are like Paul Revere, but yet they are their own Paul Revere's doing what is best to not only look after their own fellow townspeople, but also for their state as a whole, and perhaps for the nation, because as we know, in 1774, it wasn't that far off before shots were heard around the world. In 1775, John Langdon made his way into New Hampshire politics, which which included serving as the House Speaker. And in 1776, he was elected elected to the Second Continental Congress, where he served on a committee that helped create the Continental Navy. Hey, all that experience out at sea, uh, commanding a ship, owning a small fleet of vessels. Yeah, with that kind of expertise, I, I could see how serving on a committee that helped create the Continental Navy was paramount. And as a matter of fact, uh, there was a signer, uh, to the Declaration of Independence, who um, played a huge part in creating our um, the Continental Navy. And he would have obviously known John Langdon, but he was a signer from North Carolina. His name was Joseph Hughes. So if you ever hear anything about Joseph Hughes, think of uh, the Navy, the Continental Navy, that is. Uh, what did John Langdon oversee that was the first during the early onset of the American Revolution? Anybody want to take a guess? He oversaw America's first warship get built, the America. You know, too often we think, when, the, when we think of the American Revolution, we tend to think of all the fighting that goes on by land. But we do forget that there was fighting on the ocean. Or in the water, I should say. And after all, it's one thing to defend your country by land, you got to defend it by sea as well. Remember folks, England, England's military not only is the mightiest by land, it is also the mightiest by sea. Now before going off to Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention, where was John Langdon stationed? In New Hampshire, his home state, where he served once again as the House Speaker. Now, you know, when these delegates are meeting for the first time, and once after they've met, and they start getting down to business, would it be safe to say that there are delegates who have already made up their minds as to what they want this new government to look like? Absolutely. So, in other words, there could be delegates already who know that there needs to be a strong central government at the same time it's fair to say that there could be delegates who want a better system of government but they don't want a government that's too strong that might um limit the powers of the states that might as well as uh, limiting the powers of um of what people can do on an ordinary basis in other words they don't want a government that will infringe upon daily rights. They don't want a government that, um, that is too intrusive. They may not want a government that, that is constantly regulating people's fundamental rights, like, say, free speech, freedom to assemble, petition, that kind of thing. So, as for John Langdon, did he favor a strong or a weak central government? The answer is the following: He uh, favored a strong central. He favored a, a strong central government. And why do you think he would have favored a strong central government? Well, Langdon himself believed that government with broad powers was one better suited to defend itself. Okay, if you if you have a government that has broad powers, then yes, like say for example, to uh, maintain a national army to maintain a navy, to um, have means to uh, build um, vessels, navy vessels, that is, or I should say navy ships for the time, basically have the means to uh, provide for a national defense in a time of war. In other words, John Langdon knew under the Articles of Confederation that none of those measures, like, you know, being able to raise and maintain an army to providing for a national defense were not included in the Articles of Confederation. So Langdon knew that, hey, in order for this government to be better from a military standpoint, we've got to have more broader powers. And while, yes, there are going to be people who may not like a standing army, the bottom line is is that there needs to be an army all the time, whether it's in a time of war or in a time of peace, because if you get complacent, then how are you going to know how to defend your country when the inevitable happens or the unexpected rather because i will tell you this much um in a little over 25 years from from 1787 our nation will be at 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 war and it will be a war that will once again uh, put america's freedom not only at stake but it will um, it will become America's second war of independence. And I think many of you all know what I'm referring to because uh, I did a, a, a series last year uh, titled, Through the Perilous Fight, the, the, six, the From the Burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner in the Six Weeks that Saved the Nation. Pardon me for getting ahead in all this, but remember folks, in 1787, we do have to think about how we're gonna maintain our country's national security. We can't just assume that, okay, we had defeated the mightiest empire six years earlier, that war itself will never happen again in the United States. That's wishful thinking, but the reality is that that's just not um, likely to ever happen again where we would be immune from war. So John Langdon was very active at the Constitutional Convention, and he spoke more than 20 times, and I think it's fair to say that his solid that his background in financing military operations was very crucial to why he believed that a government with broad powers was better was one that was better suited to defend itself. So, having had experience in the shipping industry, to uh, serving in in the American Revolution, um, and overseeing uh, the construction of America's first um, warship, yes. That those kinds of connections right there, in terms of financial matters, are key to investing in America's uh, future, not just from a infrastructure standpoint, but from a um, from a security uh, standpoint as well. Now, was John Langdon a leading force figure behind getting his fellow New Hampshiremen delegates to ratify the U.S. Constitution? Yes. Langdon himself, folks, believe it or not, had to go as far as having to postpone the ratification voting, which was originally supposed to have taken place in February of 1788. He even had to write a letter to George Washington advising him that it was going to take a few more months longer, because many of his fellow New Hampshire men, who were delegates to the state convention, really were not sold on this document. They they were skeptical about it. And you know what's interesting about New Hampshire is that it's it's a small state, just like New Jersey and Delaware. I could see how people in New Hampshire were very fearful that that people in uh, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Virginia would have far more representation and would have and would benefit far more than the smaller states because the larger states would have a greater um, would have greater representation to where the little guys would simply be left out of the equation altogether. So there is good news to report that come June of seventeen eighty eight, after working tirelessly for four months, In garnering additional extra votes to secure the ratification approval, John Langdon's uh, mission became a success. It didn't happen overnight, but thank heavens he had time on his side to be able to um, sway a lot of undecided um, voters, or I should say naysayers who weren't really sold on this, to now vote in favor. It was a close vote. By a vote of fifty-seven to forty-seven, the New Hampshire State Convention ratified the U.S. Constitution, which it did so on June twenty-first of seventeen eighty-eight. Why is New Hampshire's ratification of the U.S. Constitution so important? Well, you need to have, since there were thirteen colonies, thirteen states. I don't know why I still like to think of them as colonies, but i got to remind myself, we're in the post-Revolutionary War era. We've graduated from colonies to states. But in order for the Constitution to uh, become the actual governing document, there needed to be 9 out of 13 states to vote in favor. New Hampshire became the ninth state, and by being the ninth state, the Constitution itself went into effect as the United States' governing document. So, let's let's tip our hats off to John Langdon for everything that he did in going above and beyond to make this a reality. But what's even more unique about John Langdon is that a year later, in 1789, he had the unique honor of supervising the first presidential electoral vote that made him the first President Pro Tempore. Does anybody know what the President Pro Tempore of the Senate means? Well, for starters, the Vice President is the one that presides over the Senate when there is a tie, and the Vice President is the one that can break the tie. The, the President Pro Tempore is the second highest ranking official in the US Senate behind the Vice President. Of course, who is George Washington's vice president, folks? Was it Thomas Jefferson? Was it James Madison or John Adams? It was John Adams. But just to let you all know, when uh, when John Adams became vice president to George Washington, do you know what he said about that position? He said it was the loneliest position. As a matter of fact, George Washington never included John Adams in any of his uh, cabinet meetings. So for about eight years, I could see how John Adams would have been bored out of his wits by being vice president. A matter of fact, the secretary of state was more powerful than the vice president, if that tells you anything right there, folks. Up until uh, John Langdon's death, uh, Langdon stayed active in New Hampshire politics. He was offered by President Jefferson, the secretary of the Navy post, but declined. John Langdon died on September 18th of 1819 at the age of 78. That was quite unheard of in those days to have lived to have been almost 80 years old. But people were capable of pulling off um, surprises like that. And when you visit Portsmouth, New Hampshire, John Langdon's estate is still there and is open to the public. As I said earlier, some of our um, signers who will be learning about, yes, they may not have been on the same scale as George Washington or James Madison in terms of prestige, but we will learn that all of them contributed in some form, big and small. I would have to say John Langdon was a big contributor and his expertise as a merchant serving in the Navy having his own, owning his own fleet of vessels, all that comes in hand, as well as overseeing construction of the first um, warship in America. A fine statesman. Thank you, John Langdon. Our uh, second delegate from New Hampshire is Nicholas Gilman. And and I'm sure just like John Langdon, many of y'all probably don't, didn't know anything about Nicholas Gilman. Well, what do we know about him? He was born on August 3rd, 1755, in Exeter, New Hampshire. Exeter is not far from uh, Portsmouth, and it turns out that Nicholas Gilman is one of six siblings. He's born around the time that the French and Indian War breaks out. So, at age 20, which would be around 1775, he enters the military and accepts a position Of administrative officer in a New Hampshire regiment. This regiment fought at places like Ticonderoga, New York, aka Fort Ticonderoga. How ironic that my wife and I, uh, when we went to Lake Placid, New York, 11 years ago for our five-year anniversary, we got to do a day trip to Fort Ticonderoga and got to witness a French and Indian War reenactment take place. For those of you uh, who like visiting historic military forts, uh, go to Fort Ticonderoga. I strongly uh, recommend recommend visiting there. And then to the uh, south of Ticonderoga, um, Nicholas Gilman's uh, New Hampshire regiment fought at Saratoga, New York, which was the uh, turning tide that pers- finally persuaded uh, the French to join um, on the side of the Americans. Uh, after all, that was where um, Horatio Gates defeated uh, General John Burgoyne at Saratoga and then um, Gilman's uh, forces fought at uh, Monmouth Courthouse or what we know as Monmouth Junction New Jersey, which was the um, last uh, battle fought in the northern uh, in the northern uh, tier before the British moved uh, southward and what I find most interesting about Gilman from his uh, military um, background is that he was um, at Yorktown Virginia in October 1781. He helped uh, determine how many British troops would go about surrendering after their defeat. So it's fair to say that as a officer in the American Revolutionary War, Nicholas Gilman didn't uh, miss out on anything. But what incident in late 1786 persuaded Mr. Gilman to vote in favor of changing the existing government? And what I mean by the existing government, folks, that's the uh, Articles of Confederation. I'm sure many of you all are going to know the answer to this, because it was a topic that, wasn't discussed, that was not discussed not too long ago, so it should stay um, new in people's minds. How about Shays' Rebellion, a.k.a. Daniel Shays' Rebellion? You know, that was the rebellion that, it wasn't necessarily started by Daniel Shays, but we have to remember that the government, uh, the Massachusetts government wanted someone to blame for it, considering that Daniel Shays was an officer in the American Revolution, and that Marquis de Lafayette gave Shays a sword for his, um, for his um, heroic uh, military efforts. But Shays sold the sword as a means to pay off existing debts. And there were those in the military that saw Daniel Shays, that Daniel Shays is selling the sword as an act of uh, treason, or really, in a sense, being a traitor. And because of that, I think it's fair to say that the Massachusetts government was just desperately looking for someone to blame as being public enemy number one, and that's why they chose Daniel Shays, Daniel Shays as the uh, primary perpetrator when, in fact, that rebellion was more than just one person. Uh, those of you who were with me last when um, discussing uh, Leonard L. Richards' Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's uh, final battle, that, the, uh, that Shays' Rebellion was comprised of um, families, prominent families in western Massachusetts who... Um, whose uh, voices had not been heard by the um, governing elite in Boston and felt that it was necessary to take matters into their own hands. Uh, many of them uh, went as far as into uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, but thank heavens, uh, General Benjamin Lincoln's forces were able to suppress the raid that, which Daniel Shays uh, participated at Springfield to where the insurgents did not get their hands on the munitions at the Springfield arsenal. Uh, for those of you who are new with me, especially with this series on signing their rights away, uh, definitely check out um, Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's Final Battle, which was the last, um, the most recent podcast series I did, or previous one, I should say. But what I find interesting, too, for Nicholas Gilman is that it's not just so much uh, Shays' Rebellion that persuades him to vote in favor of changing the existing government. It just so happens in that same year, in 1786, that uh, Nicholas Gilman himself played a part in helping suppress the Exeter Rebellion, which was also known as the Paper Money Riot, which like Shays' Rebellion, it revolved around a lack of paper currency where family farmers struggled to make ends meet like making home payments. So in other words, you know, the New Hampshire legislature, including the Massachusetts legislature, They wanted people to pay their uh, debts off in hard currency. Uh, The problem is that not everyone has access to hard currency like silver and gold. Those people who have access to specie, that is actual coinage, are probably going to be people of uh, wealthy status, upper upper class status. The average family that, say, makes 12 pounds or less a year, they're only going to have access to paper money. So, in the end, with this uh, riot in um, New Hampshire, the uh, governor had the uh, backing of the um, legislature as well as the um, as well as the uh, general public. Whereas in Massachusetts, that was the opposite. Many in the um, many in the uh, military in Massachusetts that uh, were called up to uh, suppress the insurgents actually sympathized with the, with those uh, people. What else did Nicholas Gilman accomplish after 1787? He served as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives for four terms. He accepted the position of a federal bankruptcy commissioner from President Thomas Jefferson and he was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1804. Now, um, Nicholas Gilman unfortunately uh, passed away on May 2nd, 1814 at the age of 58. And he never married. It turns out that Gilman was one of three bachelors to sign the U.S. Constitution. Well, um, I I find that rather very unique to be one of three bachelors to sign um, a, a historic document. There's always a first for something, isn't there, folks? Well, you know, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and, you know, yes, New Hampshire is a small state but even a small state can make a statement both big and small and by being that ninth state that um approved of the constitution new hampshire was our really can be our savior because had new hampshire not approved of had they not rati- gone along with the ratification approval another state would have come along but it's just good to know that um that even a small state like New Hampshire made the difference when it mattered most. So uh, thank you for letting me be on the air with you all uh, tonight, and I don't know when I'll be on the air again next. As I told you all from my uh, previous podcast um, session, that uh, here soon I'm going to be on assignment. So. I hope to be in, uh, hope to be back on the air again with you all uh, sometime soon, but um, if I'm not on for a while, I don't want you all to think that I've uh, vanished. It's just that I'm going to be on assignment, and it's going to be more than just a couple of days in terms of being on assignment. I can tell you this much, that it's going to be fun, but when you're on assignment, that doesn't mean that... Um, it doesn't mean that, yes, you can't have fun. You can. What it means is that um, you could be doing a variety of things that are fun. Well, thank you again, as always, for listening. And, um, and if any of you all know of uh, people out there who want to podcast, uh, tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Thank you again, and um, wherever you all are, um, stay safe.